Well, it went down like this. We're in the doctor's office. They're doing a sonogram. Carly said that the nurse was saying something. I didn't hear it. I looked on the screen and there were two bubbles. Inside of these two bubbles were little flashes of light. That were heartbeats. And I looked down at the floor and I started screaming. And I screamed, I knew it! I knew it! God, I knew it! And God, and I, I don't know, it's been in my heart for two weeks, however long we've known that she was pregnant, that uh, it's going to be twins. I just knew it was going to be twins. So anyways, it's just been overwhelming, but good. So, you know, everybody's like kind of on the fence whether to congratulate us or mourn with us. And, and so, yes, do that. All right. Uh, but anyways, let, let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I thank you so much uh, for your gifts and, God, your uh, blessings and the joy that we can have in you, Father. And, and not just because of the things you give us, but because of you, because we have you. And so, Lord, I, I love you. I pray that you would, you would speak to us this morning, God. Thank you for leading us in a time of worship of you, Father, for you, for your glory. And God, may you continue in that direction, God, as we, as we delve into your word, God, that, that we would see that, that our worship service goes beyond this building and into every day. And Lord, may we be devout followers of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. And so God, I pray right now, God, that you would, you would speak through me as I stand upon the authority of your word, but behind the cross so that you may receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. All right, we have been in a series in Jonah called Coming Up to Breathe. Uh, And so you can go ahead and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2 is where uh, we will be this morning. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, I know uh, for everybody in here, uh, 90 or 95% of the people in here are drivers. uh, and, And there are certain signs that we see when we get on the road that we just do not like to see, right? Uh, for instance, reduce speed ahead. We don't like that sign because, especially for me, because I'm a I'm a rule follower and uh, and I drive the speed limit. And so so when I see reduce speed ahead, I know that I have to cut it down, and that's that's not good. Uh, on the same kind of note is uh, construction zone speeding fines doubled. And I'm like, oh, if you ever want to test your your faithfulness, if you ever want to test your ability to follow rules, try to go the speed limit in a construction zone. That that is one of the toughest things for me to do is is to drive through an area that is clad with orange because of construction yet there's not a worker out there i mean (laughs) that drives me crazy but we try to do it another one that obviously is a little hard to deal with is detour detour is aggravating because you don't know where you're detouring to and oftentimes it doesn't know where it's taking you so there's there's some signs that we we don't like but one of my most despised signs is is a regular one isn't one of these specialty ones uh, that you might find on the interstate or something like that. But it's just one that you run into a lot. And that one is that upside-down triangle yield. The yield sign. Now, here, here's my deal with the yield sign. The yield sign is not like a stop sign. Stop sign, you come to an intersection, everybody has a stop sign, first come, first serve. It's fair. Okay, That's what I like about stop signs. Stop signs are fair. But when it comes to a yield sign, you come to a T in the road, and there's three different options. All right, One person gets a stop sign, one person gets a yield sign, and one person gets no sign, which is the equivalent of a go sign. Now, if I'm on the go sign side, I'm cool with it. You know what? I don't mind yield when I'm on the go sign. But when I'm on the yield sign side of it, it bothers me. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm in there every time I come to a yield sign and fuming in my car. That's not the case, but it bothers me a little bit because why am I yielding? 
Why is their traffic and why is their destination more important than my destination? Why should I have to yield when they are the ones... uh, I mean, I'm I'm as much on the road as they are. I've as much paid all the the ridiculous prices that Mississippi charges us for for our tax title and license. I've, I've done the same things that they've done. And why do I have to yield and they don't have to yield? But this is, this is what a yield sign is, isn't it? A yield sign is a submission of ourselves to another driver set forth by the law in order that we can get to a destination safely, right? That is what a yield sign is. And ultimately, when you look at it from that perspective, a yield sign is good. A yield sign is for our good. Obviously, it is for our good. Well, as we kind of go back to the story of Jonah here, I'll tie this in in a second here. As we go back to the story of Jonah, what we've seen so far is we've seen Jonah run away from God. We've seen disobedience, and this disobedience led to discipline. And in the middle of this discipline, we saw God's mercy. We saw how God was working and using discipline in order to show mercy to Jonah, in order to restore uh, Jonah. But that mercy ultimately led to chapter 2. We got those, those first parts in chapter 1, and we get to chapter 2, and we see that this mercy has led to a prayer of repentance by Jonah. Jonah sees the situation, he recognizes God's mercy in it, and he prays for repentance. Now we, now, but now we get to the point where the rubber kind of hits the road. See, repentance without any sort of change is not repentance at all. If we just say a prayer, but we don't actually do anything after we have said the prayer, we have not repented. We may have felt bad. We may have really in our hearts desired maybe that, that God would do something. But if we don't follow through, then we, actually, we haven't actually turned around. We may have stopped temporarily, but we have not turned around. And so prayer, I mean, repentance without change is not repentance at all. Re- repentance always results in change. And so what we see is Jonah's repentance and all God-centered repentance leads us to yield to God. Leads us to yield to God. That is to submit to God's ways that are set forth by God's word so that God's will can be done in and through us. And this is obviously for our good. And so I want to read our passage today. We read most of chapter 2 a couple Sundays ago, but this morning I want to read the last part of chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So what we saw last time in verses 1 through 7 is we saw Jonah really pouring out his heart. And we saw how his repentance was directed towards God. And, <clears throat> and through that repentance, or, or actually when we got to verse 7, we kind of broke it down line by line. And we looked at verse 7 and we saw this, this eloquent prayer of repentance and desire for change. But what we have in starting in verse 8 is as Jonah recounts, Jonah recalls what got him in this mess in the first place. All right. This is I've, he's already repented. He's already said, "God, I'm sorry." He said, "God, I already want to come and return to you." God, I want to do what's right. And but at this point, he says, "But let me just rehash what what went what went on. What is the reason behind all of this?" And so he he kind of throws it out there in, in verse eight of of the problem that got him into the situation that he was in in the first place. And it says in verse eight that he was clinging 
to worthless idols. Now, you might read it says those who cling to worthless idols, but you have to remember that Jonah wrote this after he was out of the belly of the fish. He didn't, he didn't bring a pad with him into the fish, okay? He, he wrote this after he was out of the belly of the fish. So when he wrote this, this was, this was an admonishment on Israel as well. But he was recalling his own sin and, and, and bringing it forth to admonish the Israelites as well. But here, here's the point. He, he says, my problem was, my struggle was, that I was clinging to worthless idols. Now, if you, if you have good memory... When we started this series, you may remember that we discussed uh, the reason Jonah fled from God. And what we said is that Jonah had this hatred of the Assyrians. And we said that the reason he hated the Assyrians is because they were a threat to everything that was, that was precious to him and to his people. They were a threat to their religion. They were a threat to their culture. And they were a threat to their safety. And Jonah didn't want God to save them. Jonah did not want God to step forward and give them an opportunity to repent, so he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And ultimately, this would kind of prove prophetic, because Assyria would come and destroy Israel and take them off into captivity. But here's the point. There was a deeper issue associated with Jonah's hatred of Assyria, and that issue was idolatry. That issue was idolatry. Now, this may sound kind of fishy at first because he was an Israelite. He was a prophet of God, and he was the one that was following God, doing God's will. So, so we have kind of this, this kind of weird issue here of idolatry. Where does idolatry fit into all of this? Well, what is idolatry? I, I, just, I just found some authors. Uh, we've all been in church long enough that we've heard uh, definitions of idolatry and all different angles and stuff like that. But I just found some different authors that kind of took just a hair of a little bit of a take on it just so we could get a different perspective. Warren Wiersbe says, An idol is anything that takes away from God the affection and obedience that rightfully belongs only to Him. So did you hear that? I think sometimes when we talk about idolatry, what we talk about is the worship of God. So anything that is worshipped more than God is is an idol. And that's true. That's the affection part of it. But but Wearsby defines it as it's more than just the affection of God, but it is also the obedience of God. So if there's anything in our lives that, that, that would lead us to do something other than what God would have us to do, that is an idol. Okay? Move on. St. Augustine said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory when, it, when you think about it in terms of God. Uh, a guy named McMath said, that for which I would give anything and accept nothing in exchange is the most important thing in my life. Whatever that is, is my God. And so when we look at Jonah and we kind of apply these definitions to Jonah's situation, uh, what, what is it that took Jonah's affection and obedience away from God that made him flee, right? So, so what is it that took his affection and his obedience away from God? What is it, uh, what did Jonah worship that he ought to have used, Right? What, what did Jonah worship instead of God? What did Jonah value supremely? Which is really the, the gist of that last definition. And when you, if you take all those questions and you consider the, the story of Jonah and you think about it, the answer to those questions, what Jonah had idolized, what Jonah had set up above all things in, in this story is Israel. Jonah had set Israel high above God. 
and above all things. Uh, Wearsby continues on this comment. He says, One such idol was Jonah's intense patriotism. He was so concerned for the safety and prosperity of his own nation that he refused to be God's messenger to their enemies, the Assyrians. Herein lies the problem, guys. This is, this is an issue for us. And, and I want to show you why. Uh, is it a bad thing that Jonah loved his country? No. No, that's silly. It's silly to think for anybody that lives in a nation to say, you ought to hate your country. No, that, that's, that's ridiculous. It's a good thing for someone to have patriotism. It's a good thing for someone to love their country. I am proud to be an American. I can't tell you, when, I, and I don't have vast traveling experience, but when I've been in foreign countries uh, and, and I go uh, either on vacation or, or I've gone on mission trips, when I get to those airports and I have to show my passport, I've got to tell you, there's a little sense of pride in me that bubbles up when I have the United States of America emblem on my passport. There's a little something about it. I love to be an American. I love to call this my home. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world, right? It's a good thing to love your country. And even more so than that, and and why this is even more problematic, because there's not only good things that can be idols in our lives, but there are godly things that can be idols in our lives. There are godly things that can be idols in our lives. For instance, Scripture says, uh, husbands, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Now, I love my wife. I love my wife. And now that she's pregnant with two, I'm going to be doing all kinds of junk that I wouldn't do regularly for my wife. But, but we're, we're going to be working through this. We're going we're gonna to do it. And I love my wife. I would do anything for her. I would die for my wife. But here is the reality. Neither our country, nor our wives, nor anything else are God. Nothing equals God. And what happens, it becomes too easy to confuse the two. It becomes too easy to confuse the two. I've heard so many people say, well, God wouldn't call a husband to somewhere that he wasn't also calling his wife. Find that for me in Scripture. Find that for me in Scripture. Because it doesn't say it in Scripture. What it says in Scripture is there is one God. And you follow that one God, right? And so so if your wife is not your God, then it does not matter where God has called her if God has called you. Right? And so there is but one God. A different example uh, that I think is very apropos for this time of the year, in between Memorial Day and in between Independence Day. And, and during these days, our country is, is, is on top-shelf patriotism mode, right? And, and during these days, we see American flags abound, and it's a good thing. We should honor our country. We should recognize those who served in our country. We should celebrate these days. But all too often in churches all around America, when it comes to 4th of July musicals and those sort of things, sanctuaries dedicated to God are decorated with, with, uh, with red, white, and blue flags and red, white, and blue streamers and all this kind of stuff. And if, if it wasn't called a sanctuary and if there wasn't a steeple on the front and someone walked in, they would have no idea that it had anything to do with God. And then, and then we sing songs that worship America and do not worship God, right? And what do we call this in Scripture? Idolatry. Idolatry. 
It's not a bad thing to love your country. It's not a bad thing to celebrate your heroes who have fallen before you. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a godly thing to love your wife. But if you place anything above God, idolatry. Straightforward, idolatry. And this is, this is and the examples I've given so far are very narrow in scope. And, and unfortunately, we, this whole sermon's not on idolatry, so we, we can't spend this whole time. So I'm going to have to paint in broad strokes here. But, but, but there's all kinds of things. All kinds of good and all kinds of not good things that we can place before God. Here are just three trios right here. Pleasure, possessions, and position are three things that we oftentimes place before God. Our pleasure, our possessions, and our position. Another one brought to you by the letter F. Football, the firm, and family, right? This this leisure time of of football or or whatever yours is. The firm, that means your job and, and your family. Oh, the family is the most important thing in the world. No, it's not. God is. Uh, The next one, by the letter L, leisure, love, and even life. You cherish your life more than you cherish God. Your life is an idol. Your life is an idol. So here's the point. Here's the point. It doesn't matter whether it's a good thing or if it's an evil thing. Anything, anything that we place before Ahead of or beside God is eternally and infinitely offensive to Him. It's just a huge, huge, huge mistake. And and God doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to it. God hates idolatry. I'd love for you, we're not going to read it here, but I'd love for you to, to go home and read Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44 just rips idolatry to shreds. But, but if we want to look uh, at, a, at a case in point of how God hates idolatry, we just need to look to Exodus chapter 20, which is the, the Ten Commandments. When God lays down the, the ten laws that He is going to govern a whole society by, and eventually the whole world by, when He, when he, when he lays down these ten laws, He starts out with two. The first two, you shall have no other gods before me. And number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Whoa, whoa. The first two laws that he gives are I'm number one and you don't try to put anybody else next to me? Yep. That's it. And anytime that we do, we sin. Look, Spence Shelton said this, Spouses, careers, sports, popularity, academics are all ropes with no attachment on the other end. They are good things and often gifts from God, but worthless as saviors to cling to. And when we do cling to these things, when we do hold on to these things and we make these things idols in our lives and we hold on to them like they are God, Scripture teaches us here in verse 8 that we forfeit the grace that could be ours. We forfeit the grace that could be ours. Now, I don't want this to be confusing here, so... uh, if you look in most translations of Scripture, the word grace is not used here. And so I do not want you to place Jesus' salvation, saving grace of Jesus Christ into this sentence, okay? That's not the picture here, all right? I don't know why the NIV translates it this way, but that's not what's going on here. Grace by Jesus Christ to be saved is not earned, and it cannot be lost based on our activity. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient completely in His grace, by God's grace, to cover over our sins. So I do not want that to be a confusion at all. 
Alright? That's, that's not what's going on here. What, what grace means here, if you look in different translations, it has different words, but grace means kindness. So when we worship other gods, when we put anything before God, we forfeit the kindness or the good things or the blessings that God desires to pour out on us. And there's a picture here. God desires to pour out good things and blessings on us. He wants to. This is God's desire. God loves you. He's like a parent who has a child. And when that child's obedient, what do we do? We pour out blessings on that child. We pour out gifts. We do things for our children because of their obedience to us. And it's the same picture here. But when we choose other things before God, we refuse the good things that God desires to give us. We refuse the very things that God is waiting eagerly in heaven to pour out on us because we have chosen something more precious to our own hearts than Him. And then instead of the blessings and instead of the good gifts, instead of the kindness that God desires to pour out on us, we load up on discipline. We load up on God's discipline. Psalm 16 verse 4 kind of summarizes that. It says, The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods. So here's the picture. When we continue to stay in this this spirit of idolatry and following a lifestyle of idolatry, we get stuck in a process or a routine of Jonah. We get stuck in a getting stuck in a storm, getting thrown overboard, repenting, but not really changing being stuck in a storm, being thrown overboard, repenting, but not really changing, and going over and over and over and over again. But Jonah, we praise God, we get to the end of chapter 2, and Jonah has rebuked this former way of life, and he is moving forward. And I want you to see he is moving forward in two specific ways. Let's look at verse 9, part, uh, verse, uh, part A, I guess. It says, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. So when someone when someone does something kind for us, what do we do? What's the natural response for us to do? We thank them, right? If anybody does every, anything kind for us, it's just a natural good southern thing to do or really anywhere in the world thing to do to thank them. But even even if the person is uh, is already being paid to do a service like a waiter, even if but if they do a good job, what do we do? We thank them, and, we, and if we don't see them, we thank them by leaving them a little bit uh, a larger tip. Now, if we think about it from, from that point of view, how much more should we be thanking God and praising God and worshiping God for taking us out of our sin and back into His will? How much more should we thank, praise, and worship God? Because here's the reality. Even when we repent, and maybe even if we start to change, here's the reality, it is not by our strength, it is not by our might that we have seen our fault and turned from our wicked ways and returned to God. If we've learned anything from Jonah, we should have learned that. He was on the boat, he was in the storm, and what do they do? They start dumping the cargo. Okay, we can get back to shore if we dump the cargo, but nope, they couldn't do it. All right, well, let's start getting on the oars, and they start straining on the oars. But guess what? The oars couldn't do it either. Jonah gets thrown into, into the, the drink, and he stinks down to the bottom. In chapter 2, he says, there was seaweed around my head, and praise God, he's in a bottom feeder, because he needed someone to save him. He could not do, him, do it himself. So ultimately, repentance is an 
acceptance of God's deliverance. I like that. So I'm going to say it again. Repentance is an acceptance of God's deliverance. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus, New Testament, Luke 17, walking through town, and ten lepers see him. They've heard the story. They know Jesus is this miracle man. And so they're walking around and they say, Jesus, Jesus, heal us. Heal us, Jesus. Jesus has mercy on them. He looks at them and he says, go to the priest. And by the time you get there, you will be healed. So all ten of them walk away and go to the priest. And on their way, all of them are healed. They're, they're not lepers anymore. They have been completely healed by God. And so they get to the priest. The priest declares them clean. And so the, the one, only one out of the ten, returns to Jesus. And he gets down on his face and he worships Jesus. And he worships God. And he thanks him for what he has done. And then verse 17 and 18, Jesus, it says, Jesus asked, We're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Because he was a Samaritan. Here's the picture, guys. God wants your worship. God desires your worship. And especially when God has delivered you, we, we owe God our worship. I love how Dr. Leslie Allen puts it. Deliverance creates the obligation of worship. May we be mindful, guys, to thank the one who provides all good things for us. To thank the one who takes us out of the muck and out of the mire and brings us up to new life. May we be thankful to God. But we must not stop there. We must not stop with praise. We must not stop with worship. We must not stop with thankfulness. We must continue with commitment. That's the second part of that verse. What I have vowed, I will make good. Now, what, what was Jonah's vow to the Lord? Now, jo- what was Jonah? Jonah was a prophet. And the job of a prophet was to be the mouthpiece of God. So the vow that a, that a prophet took was that, God, I will speak for you. When you give me something to speak, I will speak it. I will never speak on my own. I will never go and make prophecies on my own apart from you. I'm going to speak what you speak. And when you speak through me, God, I'll never change anything. Okay, this is the vow that a prophet makes. But what does he do? He is, he is disobeyed. He has broken this vow, right? And because he ran away from God and he he fled trying to get to Tarshish. But now he is recommitting. Now he is saying, God, yes, I've seen my ways. You've pulled me up. I've changed and I'm going to fulfill my vows. Uh, And and this is is what committing is. is Committing is, is putting action behind our repentance because true repentance never lies dormant. It requires commitment. And biblical commitment always has two characteristics. And God's been working, working on me this week <laughs> as I've thought about these two specific characteristics of biblical commitment. The first one is, trust God completely. Trust God completely. Because halfway trusting in God does not honor or glorify God in the least. It's kind of like this whole Boy Scouts issue. I don't know if you've been keeping up with it. I'll, I'll give you the rundown real quick. But, but towards the beginning of this year, a lot of 
uh, sponsors for the Boy Scouts started sending them letters and notices that we are going to pull our funding if you do not starting, start allowing homosexuals into the Boy Scout fellowship, community, whatever it is, all right? And so all of a sudden that, that those purse strings start to get pulled and there's, there is an issue. And, well, the gay rights groups jump on it pretty quick. The gay rights groups jump on it and they say, okay, here's what we want. We want you to not only allow homosexual scouts, but we want you to allow homosexual scout masters, scout leaders, troop leaders, all that kind of stuff. Uh, while at the same time, that was, that was the word coming from one camp, and on the other side, the more traditional and religiously affiliated uh, scout troops were fighting it. They said, no, no, this is the way it is. This is the way that we believe. This, our our uh, motto says that we are going to live a moral life, and we don't believe that this is moral. This is anti the Bible. And so if you enforce this on us, we are going to withdraw. And so they had, Boy Scouts had this big issue, and it's been going on for months now. Well, a few weeks ago, it came down. The vote was taken, and the decision was made. And what the Boy Scouts decided to do was take a middle ground. They took a middle ground. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to allow leaders to be homosexual, but we will allow for troops, for scouts, to be homosexual. And in doing so, I want you to see something. They have pleased no one. They've pleased no one. See, what's happened is the gay rights groups are still crying out. Well, this is unfair. This is unconstitutional. How dare you say that they could have just young men that could come in, but not the leaders as well? And on the other side, the religiously affiliated groups are saying, no, this breaks, this, it's not just uh, about accepting young men as they are. It's about following a certain code and, and believing in certain uh, principles. And so, in the very end, they have pleased no one because they made a halfway commitment. And again, halfway commitments to God do not please Him. Halfway commitments to God make no effect. It is not honoring to God. God always requires a full commitment to Himself. Think about it. What does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your mind. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your soul and all your strength. Jesus says all of you belongs completely and totally to God. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself completely, put himself to the side and take up his cross, be willing to go to death to follow me. If anyone would be willing to follow me, we must trust God completely guys completely not wavering not faltering not saying god i'm not sure uh, but no god whatever it is you want however much you demand whatever it is god i give it all because i'm all in for you i'm all in for you and when we get to that point guys and when we say that and we we make that commitment in our heart this next part becomes rather easy this next part fills right in but the second part of commitment is not only trust god completely but the second part is obey god immediately obey god immediately thomas akempis says instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is delayed obedience is disobedience and this is what we see in scripture right we see this with zacchaeus Zacchaeus is, is a sinner. He's lost. He goes to see Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. And when he gets to Zacchaeus' house, 
He is converted and immediately, what does he do? He says, I'm giving half of my stuff away to the poor and I'm giving four times whatever I have cheated anybody out of their money. That is, I have repented, I have changed, and now you're going to see the fruit of my change immediately. That's what we see with the disciples. The disciples are sitting there on their boat making money and (laughs) Jesus comes by and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And boom, immediately, according to the, the Gospel of Mark, immediately they drop their nets and they go and follow God. This is the kind of commitment, this is the kind of obedience that God demands. Don't wait to obey God. Trust Him. Trust Him now. How many times have we been in situations where we know that we should share the gospel? Oh, I have this neighbor. Oh, I have this friend. Oh, I have this coworker that I know that God is laying on my heart to share the gospel with this person. And you get to talking to him and you chicken out and you start talking about the weather again. And you decide, well, maybe next time. It can wait. Excuse me. It can wait a little longer. Listen, trust God now. Maybe God is, is leading you to help somebody financially. Maybe God has put on your heart to help somebody out who cannot help themselves out, but it's already tight on your end. Trust God now. If you wait for the, amount of, the right time when you have the right amount of money to help people out, you'll never help anybody out. And this is the picture that we have with Jonah. Jonah repents. Jonah remembers what led him there, and then he says, but I'm changing, God, and I'm committing. I am going back to you. But I love the end of verse 9, because the end of verse 9 does what, what is the most important thing. It provides the motivation. It says, okay, this is obedience. This is what I'm going to do. This is how it looks. But, but there has to be something underneath it. There has to be a foundation. If there is no foundation, it will collapse. And so he comes and he gives us the foundation. He, he shows us what took him from disobedience to repentance to life change. And what is his motivation? And, and on that note, what should be our motivation? And on that note, this, this verse, what we see here is, is the, the central theme of Jonah. It is the central theme of all of Scripture. And it's verse 9, part C. It says, salvation comes from the Lord. And that's it. That is our motivation. See, Jonah had a couple of reasons that he should obey God. The first one, and I think most obvious, if you were a casual reader of Scripture, I think the most obvious is fear. God's discipline of Jonah was pretty severe. But the problem with fear is that it's, it's an emotional reality. That's the, 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 what fear hangs on is our emotions, and emotions are our most shallow part. Adrian Rogers says, God does not do his deepest works in our most shallow parts. And, and, and I've, I've, I've always said this, that's the problem with, with uh, stuff like Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames and those sorts of pro- programs, and, and people have been saved through those things. And, and, and for that, you know, praise God. But here's the reality, fear is an emotional motivator, and many people are coerced into making a decision that has no roots. They're, they, they're, they're pushed and they're tricked into, into wanting to flee hell instead of wanting to pursue God. What fear does is it motivates quickly, but it does not last. But, you look at Jonah, and you look at his motivation. Salvation comes from the Lord, which means salvation belongs to 
the Lord. And what we see is love. What we see is love. Instead of fear. Instead of, I mean, he's in the belly of a fish. <laughs> instead of fear, the reason he obeys God is out of love. Spent Shelton again says, This salvation belongs to someone. It has an owner, a giver. It is not abstract, nor is it a set of rules to follow. It is the property of someone. We cannot buy it, earn it, or steal it. It must be given. And Jonah recognizes it. Jonah gets a glimpse of it. Okay, this is true. This is not my salvation to grab. This is someone else's salvation to give. And apart from God, he realizes this. Apart from God, he would have died. Apart from God, he would have died. He would be dead. Thus, his obedience is not based on fear. His obedience is based on appreciation and love of the one who rescued him. That is where his motivation comes from. And the same must be true of us. Apart from God, we'd be dead. Apart from God, we'd be dead. Dead in our sins. Romans 3, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is the owner of our salvation. And He has extended this precious gift to us through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death sentence was on our head and Jesus put it on Himself in order that we may have new life. And guess what, guys? Because of that, God desires a new kind of obedience. God desires us to obey out of love. J.D. Greer puts it like this. God isn't just after obedience. He's after a whole new kind of obedience. An obedience that grows from desire. An obedience fueled by love. And he continues, seeing that Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath for us gives us the motivation for the new kind of obedience. Salvation comes from the Lord has been given by him to us and here is the reality our lives are indicators of how we respond to that truth our lives are an indication of how we respond to the truth of the grace of God through Jesus Christ we get to verse 10 and we see the action plan I I love this Jonah has has gone through the steps now. He's, he's gone through it all. He's repented. He's made a commitment. And so God finally says, go do it. Verse 10 says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The, the fish didn't have seasickness and, and, and throw Jonah up. That, that's not what happened. God said, throw him up. He's made the change. He's going to do what I said he needs to do. And now, go do it. Go do it. And that's the same message for us, guys. God will, through His Holy Spirit, send conviction into our hearts that we may know what we should change from. He will send trouble. He will send a storm into our lives that we may figure out in what way that we have turned from God. And when we recognize it, and when we repent, and when we give it up and say, God, I am all yours. I'm going to follow you. I'm I'm all in, and I'm coming after you right now. God says, go! Don't, Don't wait. Don't sit around. Go live it now. There was a captain of a ship. He was 
he was patrolling by the coast. And all of a sudden, it was the middle of the night, and he saw a faint light off in the distance, directly ahead. So the captain asked, told his signalman, he said, contact that ship and let them know that we're coming and tell them to, to redirect their course 10 degrees to the south. So the signalman jumped on it and said, uh, redirect your course 10 degrees to the south. Uh, uh, we're, we're coming this way. And immediately they got a response. And it says, redirect your course 10 degrees to the north. <laughs> well, the captain got a little aggravated by this. <laughs> and so he said, all right, send him another message. Tell him to redirect his course 10 degrees to the south because I'm a captain. And so he got on the horn, told him to redirect your course 10 degrees to the south. This is the captain. And then they got an immediate response. Redirect your course 10 degrees to the north. This is seaman, uh, how's it go? Uh, I don't know, ranks. Seaman third class Jones. All right? And so now the captain's irate, right? <laughs> you don't, you don't, if you're a captain, you don't get called out by a seaman third class. And so, so he says, all right, now send him a third message. And they send him a third message. And he knew in this message he would invoke fear in this little ship. And so he calls out to this little ship and he says, redirect 10 degrees to the south. This is a battleship. All right? And then immediately it comes back. It says, redirect 10 degrees to the north. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> Here's the point. Jesus is our lighthouse. And he gives us an opportunity to, and points us in a direction so that we do not inflict harm on ourselves. So that we do not crash into the barrier of our own sin and sink our own ship. He says, no, follow my direction instead of following your direction. And may we as the church of Jesus Christ recognize him for who he is. Recognize Him for, for being God and being man and being completely sufficient for our sins and completely sufficient for our salvation. Appreciate what He has done for us and then ultimately obey Him out of that love. This is the message of Jonah and this is where we're going to be going from this point on is the obedience of Jonah and how God desired this new kind of obedience to look a certain way and not just regular obedience. But we'll, we'll get to all that. But, but here's the point. Are you looking at Jesus? Are you looking at Jesus? Are you looking at the one that gives you direction? And are you following? Are you obeying? Are you obeying out of love? Recognizing what he's done for you? Where do you stand? Let's pray. God, I love you. May we be wise enough to follow you, God. May we be wise enough to see your light and God, walk in it. Lord, your scripture teaches us to walk in the light as you are in the light. So God, may we walk as you walk. May we follow where you go. Lord, sometimes when we preach about obedience, grace gets pushed in the back corner. But Lord, let us not be unwise to, to not realize, God, that these things are, are linked Father, it is because of your grace that we obey. And may we see your grace. God, I pray that for those in here who have never known Jesus Christ, have never looked at him and, and said, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. 
I turn my life over to you. For those of us in here who have not done that, God, I pray through your Holy Spirit, you would do that in this moment. God, you would convict their hearts and they would would see their need for a Savior and they would turn to you, Jesus, as the only one in all of history who could save. But God, there's so many more in here. Let us consider our lives and let us look at our idols. Let us look at the things that we treasure and value more than you. Let us throw those, cast those idols into the valley where they can be burned up. And God, submit fully to you, trusting completely in you, and obeying immediately to follow you. God, work in your way. You know specific situations. You are speaking to hearts in specific ways. And only by your grace and only by your revelation can you expose these things and draw people to repentance. So, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, you would do that this morning. Lord, let us respond to what you're doing. In Jesus' name I pray.